travelling back on the train on Thursday evening when I finally got an opportunity to speak to Peter and to settle on this passage for today. And he asked me, do you have a, a title for the passage? And at that point, I didn't have a thought in my head, which is not an unusual experience for me, but I had no particular thought in relation to a title. And then I was just going through my mind, what's in Luke 5? It's about Peter and the beach, and it's about the boat and the catch and the commissioning. And I said to Peter, we'll call it the ultimate beach mission. And there's a sense in which that is exactly what's going on here. There are lots of beach missions going on at this time of year. I'm sure you pray for them. The work of United Beach Missions and other agencies in the work they do in the seaside resorts. But it all stems back to what happened on this beach. The mission of the Lord Jesus uh, coming as God become man into the world and his mission in calling and equipping Peter to go and catch men. All the mission of the world ever since hinges and finds its ultimate origin in the mission of Jesus on the beach that day. So let's turn to it and we're going to look at four pictures of Peter that we discover here in the passage. First of all, we see Peter cleaning his nets. There he is in the first two verses and uh, we discover there uh, Jesus standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him, listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing the nets. So first of all, Peter cleaning his nets. He was one of these fishermen. He was hard at work. It was something they had to do after every fishing trip to make sure the nets weren't damaged and uh, to make sure they were ready for the next trip. And I imagine that Peter just wanted to get the nets cleaned as quickly as possible and he just wanted to get up the road, as we say. He just wanted home. He'd had a long night in the boat and uh, he'd been fishing. Verse 5 tells us all night when others had been sleeping and now he just wanted to get finished and to get home to his bed. He was tired and he was frustrated. Verse 5, you'll notice, tells us that he'd been working hard all night and had caught nothing. He wasn't fishing for fun. It was his job. And if he didn't catch fish, he didn't earn cash. And so as we think of him cleaning his nets, we can imagine him, perhaps his muscles were aching, perhaps his eyes were gritty now in the daylight, his stomach was empty, probably because he hadn't eaten, and his heart was heavy because he hadn't caught any fish. So maybe Peter, uh, like any of us would be in that circumstance, wasn't really paying attention to what was going on further along the beach, where verse 1 tells us a crowd were gathering to listen to Jesus. And as more and more people came, the crowd pushed forward and Jesus was getting nearer and nearer to the water's edge and still the crowds were coming. It's a, it's a fascinating picture, isn't it? If we take our eyes off Peter just for a moment and think about what was going on around him. This crowd growing and growing and growing to hear Jesus preaching. You're about to be engulfed by the crowds again in, in Edinburgh City Centre this year for the festival and for the fringe. And it'll be exciting and it'll be thrilling to see the throng. But I wonder how many will gather and how many crowds will grow exponentially to hear the preaching of God's word. If you and I live in the real world, we would say it's highly unlikely that's ever going to happen. What has happened nowadays is that by the seaside and in the fringe and in the, in the, uh, in the great throng of life, people will gather for almost anything else. But very few people will come to hear the word of God being preached. Comparatively few. Who wants to listen to a preacher? What is the attraction in that? But look at verse 1. It proves to us that there is nothing like it in all the world. Do you believe that, friends in Charlotte Chapel, as you look around you and see the vast panoply of entertainment available to you on the streets of Edinburgh this next month? 
Do you believe that nothing will reach the core of the human heart like the proclamation of the word of God? Now the crowds don't get that, that's why they don't come. That's why we have to be creative. And it's thrilling to see all that you're engaged in here in order to break down the barriers and give people an opportunity that they're not sure they really want to hear the word of God. But when they begin to hear it, when it begins to impact, it goes like an arrow to the heart. And it convinces and it convicts and it changes lives in the way that nothing else can do. No momentary entertainment. No um, cerebral challenge can possibly do what the word of God does. And so here is the word of God in the lips of the Son of God. We can't hear that today, but we can still hear his word as we open the scriptures. The God-inspired truth of the Old and New Testament. And we won't be a bored crowd of people in church if we gather to listen to the word of God with that understanding as the pastor gets up here week by week that it's not his idea, it's God's idea we've come to hear. And it will thrill us. And it will change us. But as far as we can tell, Peter hadn't done that. He wasn't part of the crowd who'd come to listen to Jesus. He was too wrapped up in his own concerns, probably, to be bothered with what Jesus was doing. And often we're exactly like that. There are huge blocks mentally in our minds as we come to hear the word of God. We're thinking about all the things that we haven't been able to do this past week. We're thinking about all the things that we still have to do this incoming week. We're like Peter. We're preoccupied by the moment of our lives. And we find it so hard to focus on the word of God. But the wonderful thing in verse 2, as you look down and see it, is that whether or not Peter was bothering about Jesus, Jesus was bothering about Peter. He had noticed, he saw, verse 2, at the water's edge, two boats. Uh, Here is the Lord Jesus preaching and noticing. My wife, Margaret, who is with us this morning, says that uh, it's impossible for men to do two things at once apart from... uh, Drinking tea and eating biscuits. Uh, That's her experience of manhood. But here is the Lord Jesus, and he's preaching, and he's noticing. It's amazing, incidentally, what you see when you're preaching. I just like to throw that in to unsettle people uh, as I'm preaching. Here's the Lord Jesus on the beach, preaching vast crowds, but he notices what is going on further along. And of course, he already knew about the miserable night that, that Peter and his colleagues had been through. He knew all about their worries, just as he knows this morning in Charlotte Chapel. I'm not overly spiritualizing this. He is the Lord of glory. He knows every intimate detail about your life this morning. He knows all, all about your week, your year, your history. There's nothing that is unknown to him. He knows all about your worries, the things that distract you this morning, even as you listen to his word being preached. You see, this is a story all about Jesus being in complete control. And if we can skip ahead just for a moment, what Peter didn't know was that even as he cleaned his nets, he was wasting his time because Jesus was organizing a vast shoal of fish just offshore. And soon the nets would be in the water and soon the the boats would be sinking and the nets would be broken under the weight of the fish that Jesus would bring in. We'll see more of that in a moment, but just think for now about that picture. Peter cleaning his nets, feeling thoroughly disheartened, thoroughly discouraged, wondering what the next few days were going to hold for him. There is no circumstance in your life this morning, past, present, or future, over which the Lord Jesus is not in control and about which he is unaware. There is nothing that he does not have the power radically to change. You might be keeping your distance from him today. 
You might be very buttoned up spiritually and you're here with a spirit of formality in your heart. You're here because if you didn't come, it would cause phone calls and questions. But actually, you're keeping your distance from the Lord Jesus. And what he wants is for us to come to him and to understand that he knows everything there is to know. We're not hiding from him. We can't. Maybe that's why we read in verse 3 that Jesus got into one of the boats and it was the one belonging to Simon and he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So the second picture, first of all, Peter cleaning his nets. Secondly now, Peter sailing his boat. He had lots of excuses for not doing so. He had plenty of reasons, good reasons, for declining the request of the Lord Jesus. And I suppose many of us can identify with that. There's always a good reason, I find, why I should say no to some opportunity for serving the Lord that opens up. Always a good reason as to why we couldn't do it. And Peter had a genuine reason. He was exhausted. He'd been out all night. He could have explained that they'd caught nothing and maybe they, could, they would have to go out again. What about all the others? He could have said, what about all these other books? Have you ever played that game where you're asked to do something? And as you swither momentarily trying to think of a better reason to decline, you think, of, well, why didn't he go to someone else? What about all the other people who could have done this? Why am I always the one? Why is it always me who gets asked? What we forget is, isn't it, in that context of being asked to engage in service for the Lord, what we forget is that the Lord brings us into his service so that he can bring us into blessing. We don't seriously think that he actually needs us, do we? I know, of course, on one level he does, because it's true he has no other plans for reaching of the world than, than for us, but he is the Lord of infinite glory. Why did he choose to make it that way? Why did he choose to work through human means? He did it to bring us into glory. He, he did it to make us his partner. We know how this story ends, but I wonder... Did Peter ever later in his life look back on that moment when Jesus got into the boat and asked him to push out a little from shore? I wonder, did Peter ever consider later on what would have happened in his life if he'd refused to help, if he'd said, I'm sorry, I'm really exhausted. I've been out all night. I'm tired. Uh, my wife works during the day. I've got to get home and look after the kids. Would you mind going into someone else's boat? Of course, he couldn't have known the consequences of letting Jesus use his boat as a pulpit at that moment in time. But it is a little reminder to us, as we see him now uh, cooperating with Jesus, it's a reminder to us that it is in the ordinary duties of our lives that we discover the amazing and exceptional things God has for us. It would be my testimony, and I suppose it would be the testimony of many of us this morning, that the way the Lord has led us has not been in the mass of decisions I thought I was making but have been in a hundred or maybe even a thousand small, apparently inconsequential decisions that I made from day to day. And this small thing led to this slightly bigger thing, and this bigger thing led to this very big thing. And then I look back on it all and I see there was a hand in this. And so that's what Paul means when he says in Romans 12 that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, which is our... A basic spiritual act of service. We're not to conform to the pattern of the world. We're to be renewed in our minds. And then he says, then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is. His good, perfect, and pleasing will. It's just as you, 
moment by moment live with and for the Lord Jesus in the seemingly mundane, small, apparently inconsequential issues of your life, that his great will and plan opens up for us as his people. Well, there wasn't a murmur of complaint from Peter as he pushed off from the shoreline so that Jesus could teach and more people could hear. So next we see Peter changing his mind. Cleaning his nets, then sailing his boat, now changing his mind. Do you see it there in verses 4 and 5? That's a little mercury tilt switch in Peter's mind. When Jesus had finished speaking, verse 4, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard, hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. You see the point at which his mind changes midway through verse 5. I wonder, did the the, the command of the Lord Jesus take Peter by surprise? After all, Peter was the professional fisherman. Jesus was the preacher. He was the son of a carpenter. And you can see by Peter's initial response in the beginning of verse 5 that he's none too impressed with the idea of going out uh, fishing again. Peter was an expert fisherman. And in the words of the 70s Motown song, he knew that night time was the right time. I don't know if there is such a song, but it sounds as if there might have been. He knew that night time was the right time for fishing. And now it's uh, late in the morning. The sun's high in the sky. And they caught nothing at the best time, at the optimum time for fishing. What is the likelihood of them catching anything now in the, the, in the noontime of the day? And he's just cleaned all the nets. We've just moved house on Monday. And we've been doing a lot of painting. You can see the colours under my nails if you want to shake hands at the door. And you know what it's like after you've done the gloss work and you get the brushes all cleaned off. And uh, maybe you have someone who does that for you, but we do it. And uh, you get the gloss off them. A filthy job. And you wonder, will they ever clean up? And then you, you're just about to go and put them in the garage and you realize there's a strip that you've left unpainted. You ever had that sinking feeling in your heart? Got to get the brush out again, get the tarps off the brush, get the gloss out, get the screwdriver out, get the lid off the gloss, get the job done again. A galling experience. Here he is, he's cleaned all the nets, he's got them all folded up in the boat, and Jesus is saying, listen, we're not just going to use the boat to preach from, we're going to use it to fish from. How enthusiastic is Peter likely to be about that? He had a decision to make in that moment. Would he allow Jesus, the teacher, to tell him precisely how to live? And would he allow Jesus, the teacher, precisely tell him how to be Peter, the fisherman? That's interesting, isn't it? I find that a very interesting crisis for Peter here. There are lots of us who are quite happy to keep Jesus at arm's length and to listen to the generalities of what we think he has to say. So we're happy for Jesus to give us information about what it's like to be a church and how we should preach and how we should teach because that's Jesus' business. But when he gets into the boat and tells me how to fish and I've spent 20 years or 30 years as a fisherman, then there's a different equation altogether. When the boat is a pulpit, Jesus is in control. Peter knows nothing about preaching. But when it reverts reverts to being a fishing boat, Peter's in control. But now Jesus tells him what to do. 
And in a split second, Peter changed tack in verse 5. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. We have brought all our years of professional expertise to this expedition. We went out there having fun. We've had a hopeless, miserable night. We know we're not wasting our time. If we thought there were fish out there, we would be out there now. We know our trade. But, there's the change of time. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. Friends, the willingness to listen and obey the Lord Jesus, even when you don't agree that it's the best thing to do, is utterly core to Christian discipleship. How many times have you had an issue in your life and a decision to make, and you thought, you knew what the Bible said about it, but you just felt, well, of course this is what the Bible says, but this is not for my circumstances. My circumstances are different. Clearly, this is not going to work in my life at this point. Well, the issue is, who are you going to argue with? What is the Bible? Is the Bible the word of the living God? Is it the living word of the living God? Are you going to argue with it? Are you going to imagine that you're a unique specimen in all of history? You are a unique person in all of history, but are you, are you going to imagine that the Bible might apply generally, but can't apply specifically to you? That it's teaching on your morality, that it's teaching on your giving, that it's teaching on your thought life, that it's teaching on all the raft of, uh, of truth the Bible exposes us to, is somehow not quite set up to fit your life. Do you think there are things you know more about your life than God knows about your life? That's the crisis for Peter. He knows about fishing. But because you say so, we will let down the nets. The willingness to listen and obey, even if he did not agree, shows that Peter grasped something very important about the Lord Jesus. Namely, that his word is not to be ignored on any subject. So does the preacher, the son of the carpenter, know more about fishing than the professional Peter? Verse 6, it transpires he does. When they'd done so, but such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And we don't even have time to stop on the implications of now Peter having two sinking boats. Stunning. Does Jesus know more about your life, your work? Let's home in on the area that you regard to be the area of your expertise. Does he know more about that than you know about it? Does he know more than your teacher, than your professor, than your boss, than the person that you hold in the highest esteem, than the person you aspire to be like? Does he know more about you and about life and about how to get you through life than all of them put together? Yes, he does. But part of the lesson of this glorious event in Luke 5 is the lesson of not compartmentalizing our lives so that there are issues on which we consult the Lord and then there are other issues that fall within the domain of our responsibility and expertise where we don't really feel the need to do other than run it past him for a rubber, rubber stamp. When we call him Lord, he cannot be part-time Lord. He cannot be Lord, Vice President for this part of your life. 
He has to be Lord. That's why the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And then it flips back and says, don't lean on your own understanding. Peter, expert fisherman, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Peter, cleaning his net, sailing his boat, changing his mind. Fourthly, Peter, sensing his sin. If you've done the Christianity Explored course, you may know that on the first evening of the course, we begin by asking our guests uh, if they had one question they could ask Almighty God, what would it be? And uh, they always have a very interesting array of questions. But of course, no one has a clue how to answer that question. No one knows what it would be like suddenly to be in the presence of Almighty God. When we ask the question, of course, people say, Oh, yeah, I've got questions I would like to ask God. I would like to ask him, why did... And then they, 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 they tear into the questions that they have. And they imagine that if God were suddenly to come down into the, into the room where we were, that they would just bull up to him and ask him a question and demand from him some answers. But no one has understood what it is actually like suddenly to be in the presence of the sovereign Lord of all. But Peter understood it that day in the beginning of verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Lord, I've always had a question I wanted to ask you. Uh, Can I ask you it now? No, he didn't. When Simon Peter saw this, he stormed up the beach, shouting back over his shoulder, You're almighty God, but why did you let that tower fall? Why did all these people die? No, he didn't. Friends, look and see what happens when human beings come into contact with Almighty God. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Why did he react in this way? Jesus hadn't said anything about Peter's sin. So far as we can tell, he hadn't done anything particularly sinful on that occasion. But suddenly, Peter the man is completely undone in the presence of Jesus the Lord. And verses 9 and 10 show us that they were in no doubt that Jesus had performed a staggering miracle. The link word is verse 9. Why did he ask Jesus to go? Because for he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Luke mentions the others to show that it wasn't just Peter who was impressed. This was off the Richter scale. They'd never seen anything or heard of anything in the fishing folklore about this before. And what is it that so deeply strikes Peter? Well, it's not that he feels he is a poor fisherman. He doesn't say, Lord, go away from me. I'm no longer willing to be called a fisherman. I'm rubbish compared to you. That's not his experience. He's not embarrassed because he's let himself down. He's not embarrassed because someone has done better than he could. He doesn't feel he could go away and improve in a few areas. He doesn't want to ask the Lord Jesus for a few tips. Or where did he get the sonar? Uh, A few millennia before it was due to be invented. He didn't ask any of these questions. It's much more basic than that. Standing in the presence of the Lord Jesus, realizing whom Jesus truly is, Peter is overwhelmed by the truth. By the truth about himself, by the truth about myself, by the truth about every single one of us this morning. 
That we are a sinful people in the presence of Almighty God. You know, we might play the game of averages. We might play the game of comparison. And we always compare ourselves with those who are worse than us to make ourselves look better. But I say to people, and if you happen to be here this morning and have not placed your trust in Christ and in his death on the cross to deal with your sins, you might be playing that game. You might be a vaguely religious person who thinks, well, I'm not the worst. That's not the issue. The comparison is not between you and the worst. The comparison is between you and the best. And if you don't feel it now, then you will on that day when you stand before him. You will know that you're a sinful wretch. It's interesting that we must make this comparison. How do we compare with Jesus? In Luke 4, we read how Jesus was tempted for 40 days by the devil. And Hebrews 4.15 summarizes the results for us of these tests. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, just as we are, yet was without sin. Peter knew that he was in the presence of ultimate power and ultimate perfection. And strangely, notice uh, Peter didn't run from the Lord Jesus. He seemed to know that Jesus was in control and that he didn't even have the right to flee from him except by the leave that Jesus would give him. So he didn't say to Jesus, I'm off now. He said, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. But of course, Jesus knew that Peter and every one of us is sinful. That's why he came into the world. Because we're not fit to be in his presence. Peter got it exactly right. But Jesus also knew that the answer is not for him to leave us like that. So the last thing we see. Did I say four pictures? There are five, sorry. Fifth, Peter serving his Lord. Serving his Lord. Verse 10, the end of it. Then Simon, uh, Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything. And followed him. You see, the solution to Peter's sinfulness was not Jesus going away from him. I guess there are plenty of people not in a place of worship to hear the gospel, to hear the word of God on a Sunday. And for some of them, the reason they don't come is they don't feel worthy. They, they want to keep a distance between themselves and God. But that's not the answer. The answer is for Jesus to take control and be Lord. And that's what happened here. And obviously this is only a passing summary phrase of all that Jesus had in store for Peter when, when Jesus said, from now on you will catch men. But it was the beginning of all the beach missions. It was the beginning of all the missions. It was the Lord's purpose to change Peter and to train him along with others so that having been personally reached by the Lord Jesus and forgiven by him and put into a right relationship with God by the death that Jesus would later die for them, Peter would then give his life to the task of reaching others with the joy of that. And that's still how the gospel works today. If you're a Christian person and you've lost the excitement of grace and the wonder of what it is to be rescued as we sang that great song earlier on, you'll not be witnessing to anyone. You'll not be infectious. Uh, you may be infectious, but you'll not be passing on the gospel. But it is when we just get it crystal clear what God has done for us in Christ. And when we personally apply the gospel to ourselves, that it ignites the afterburner. And I find that in my life again and again. 
Uh, throughout this story, we've seen the compelling power of the word of Christ as he speaks to the growing crowd, as he asks Peter to push the boat out for him, as he instructs him to let down the nets for a catch, as he commissions him to his service. And that verse 11 is such a powerful summary. They left everything, including the catch as far as we can make out, and followed him. Because there was now a greater priority. Even more important than the sinking boats and the wonderful catch and the nets that needed mended, there was now a greater single priority, which was following in obedience to the Lord Jesus. Now my time is gone. There are a number of things I've tried to draw attention to as we've worked our way through here this morning. But let me just summarize it uh, in this. I want to close off and go to the end of verse 5, to that tilt point in Peter's mind. But because you say so, I will let down the net. That is the situation that changed radically when Jesus gave the command. Friends, let me say this this morning to you. Let me put it to you this way. If you're, if you're someone who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus, and you hear the call of the gospel, and you hear the Lord Jesus saying, will you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me? And you need to, if you've never researched it, you need to come on a Christianity Explore course or talk to the team here and discover more about what the call of Jesus is, who he is and why he came and what it means to follow him. But the issue is basically this. He says, will you... Make me Lord and you resign that position of your life. And will you identify with the cross where I died for your sins and will you follow me? And you're thinking to yourself perhaps, well I see that that is now the only way to be forgiven. But that is going to make a real mess of my life and my plans. But because you say so, Lord Jesus I will do it. But as a Christian person and your personal walk with the Lord Jesus has been patchy at best. And you know you ought to begin reading and praying again, but you failed so often in the past as I have. You're fed up with uh, fresh starts, and you really feel like a lost cause. The Lord Jesus meets you, as it were, on the beach this morning, and he says, listen, I know all about that. I know you're a sinful wretch. I came for you. You're only closing yourself off from blessing. Come, let's reason together. And you're thinking, oh, I don't know, I don't know if I want to go through all this again, but... Because you say so, Lord, I come. Perhaps you look ahead to this busy time in Charlotte Chapel and all the activity of this autumn that is nearly upon us. And uh, maybe your diary is already full to overflowing and there are new and wonderful opportunities for service, but your heart is not in it because you've been involved so much over the years and you feel burnt out. Maybe you see very little for what you've done. Maybe you actually deep down begin to question the impact of the gospel on Edinburgh. And you're feeling utterly exhausted by it all. And you're swept along by the activities here in the chapel, but you've lost that personal sense of being utterly convinced that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is the way God powerfully works to change lives. Well, we get like that and we need to confess it to the Lord and he understands that we're frail. He knows that we're dust. But we need to get before him again and say, Lord, it's not actually my plans for this autumn, but because you say so, we're going to do it. Maybe you're waiting to sing and pray and leave before the Lord's table. 
Maybe you feel completely unworthy to break bread this morning and it is your plan to absent yourself from the Lord's table. You're a Christian person, but you feel cold inside and you think the best thing would be for you to leave and not remain as we break bread and take the cup and proclaim the Lord's death together. Maybe you're dreading the pastor reading the words, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And you know as you examine yourself, you find that you're totally unworthy. But that's not what the examination's about. It's not an examination to see if you've passed the test. You haven't. To quote uh, another well-known pastor or a pastor well-known to you here in the city of Edinburgh, we're all scumbags. Do you know that expression? That's the reality of who we are in our hearts. Here's the thing. When you examine your heart at the table, you examine it to see, is my trust and my hope still completely in the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary for me? If it is, then I come here and I proclaim, Lord, I'm a sinful man, but don't go because you came. Don't go because you went to the cross. And I rejoice today to humble myself before you, to praise you for your sacrificial death in my place, to seek your cleansing and to proclaim your death as my, as my only hope. So Luke chapter 22 verse 19, Jesus took bread, broke it, gave it to others and said, this is my body which is given for you, do this. So will you say, Lord, I was going to slip away this morning, but because you say so, I'm going to stay and break bread. Let's pray together.